Hi, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of The Negotiation. 2020 has been one of the most difficult years in recent memory. It has been difficult for everyone and seemingly spared no one from its wrath. We at WPIC and The Negotiation fully recognize this, which is why we're so incredibly grateful to you, our listeners, that have not only stuck with us, but helped us grow tremendously this past year, as we are seeing thousands and thousands of listeners every month. Quite honestly, much more than we ever thought we'd achieve. So thank you. Thank you to our listeners, and thank you to all our amazing guests. In light of the incredible year we've had, we thought a fun way to close out the year would be to look back and collect some of our favorite moments on the show and put together a greatest hits album of 2020. From all of us here at The Negotiation and WPIC Marketing and Technologies, we wish all of you a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. Enjoy. We kick off this episode with a clip from the conversation that we had with William Balbean, general partner at SOSV, our very first interview of the year, and why William thinks China is poised to be a world leader in AI and machine learning. One of the amazing things about China is that it's one of the most competitive markets in the world. In order to be competitive, companies have embraced technology quicker here in China uh, than in many other markets. Probably the biggest one for me... Uh, is artificial intelligence, AI. Uh, so China might not be the best player in AI in the world. They might not have you know, the best professors and the best uh, university students and the best PhDs. But personalization, uh, using machine learning to personalize experiences for consumers and even for companies has become table stakes, basically required to be competitive in China. Uh, so you, the amount of adoption that you see of AI technology by not just big companies, but every company uh, is really amazing. Uh, so one of the only advantages China has in, in AI is data. But I think the second uh, advantage that people overlook is just the mass adoption of machine learning to drive personalization that you see in China. SOSV has become the most active early-stage VC in the world by volume, largely due to William's incredibly hard work in Asia and Southeast Asia. So for those of you who are interested to learn more about startups, investing, and accelerators as an investment model, I highly recommend going back to January 8th and listening to the full interview, episode 22. Up next is a very intellectual conversation I had back in July with Wei Liang, Professor of International Policy Studies at the Middlebury Institute of International Studies at Monterey. We discussed China-U.S. foreign policy, as you might expect, as well as the Belt and Road Initiative and the impact of COVID, which was a bit of a running theme this year, as you might imagine. I very much appreciated how honest and steady Wei was, quite bipartisan, as one would expect from a scientist of sorts, and loved this answer she gave when I asked her, how have Western countries reacted to the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank, noting that countries like the UK and Germany applied to be members in it, whereas the USA did not, and roundly critiqued the other Western nations who did, even using influence to prevent countries from joining? And did she think that any of those actors are regretting those decisions and perhaps their behaviors today? I wouldn't say they have been regretted or not, but I will say uh, it has uh, never ended. The domestic debate in the U.S. or in Japan, the question, should the, uh, Japan join or should the U.S. join? And uh, the for those who have uh, decided not to join, and uh, they were based on the reason that I have just mentioned, you know, if this is a, a China-sponsored multilateral development bank, then for sure, China 
It's not going to uh, be able to meet the international standard. It's not going to keep the transparency, good governance, uh, you know, as other Western-sponsored or Western-dominated international institutions because only because, one, China is not capable of doing it. China has never had experience of uh, sponsoring any, in, you know, multilateral uh, uh, institutions. And uh, two is that China doesn't really have the interest to do it because the track record of China is always trying to be pragmatic, flexible, and less legalized less institutionalized. I think that was the, the worry of the United States and the Japan at the first place. It's really interesting. I've been, I, I am currently working on a paper and the, the research question was why the European Union countries decided to join back in 2016. So based on my research, I found out that the European Union has a very different approach from the U.S. on multilateralism. For example, you know, we, as we know, especially in recent years, the, the U.S. is kind of uh, more leaning towards the unilateralism, but the, the EU has been the strong supporter and advocate of multilateralism. So if they know, you know, this AIIB is intended to be a multilateral institution, they want to join. And more importantly, based on my interviews, with those, you know, uh, in Brussels. Actually, what I have found out is that lots of the European Union members, they said the the primary reason they wanted to join the AIIB as a founding member was to make sure that they were part of the negotiation at within the negotiation room, so that they will they would be able to make sure you know, all the the designing of the governance structures, the chapters, the, you know, the structure of the AIIB will be able to meet this uh, international standard. The only way to do it is from within, not from outside. So they want to be part of the parties in the negotiation so that they can actually influence uh, the direction at the very beginning when the institution was still under the designing stage. So that was a main reason they chose to participate. And of course, the economic benefit, you know, Asian, Asia Pacific in particular is, as we know, it's really one of the most dynamic regions economically, and it has lots of economic opportunities for the European countries and Canada, Australia. So they all want to be part of it. Mm-hmm. so that they can be part of the financing, you know, the investors to be able to uh, get some economic benefits as well. For those looking for more on that episode with Wei Liang, I encourage you to go back to July 28th and catch episode 55 in its entirety. Up next is a clip from our conversation with Scott Silverman, Director of Integrated Marketing at the Context Collective. An interview that closed out January where Scott is talking about how he would explain the speed of China to a foreign company looking to enter that market. If I'm talking to an American company that wants to go to to China, I say, okay, so we're going to talk about speed. The first speed is you need to be patient. You're not, it's not going to be like instant oatmeal. You need to. The first speed is slow. The first speed is slow, (laughs) really slow. And you need to pump some money in here and it's not going to be instant. Then the next speed is turbocharged and it's, and it's every day it's two X 
what it was the day before. And that the expectations are if you're, if you're advertising a product, it better be available and they better be able to get it now. And by the way, it's like you can't ruminate over, you know, creative with focus groups and coming up with exactly the right thing. Just get the stuff out there. Just do live tests. See what works. Um, take some chances because that's how Chinese companies operate. They're very tactical. They don't ruminate and think about, so what if we do this? And what if we change that? And it's like, no, make something. Make something now and we'll test it. If it doesn't work, we'll throw it out. We'll try something again. And that's the mentality that if you're coming into the China market or if you're in the China market and struggling, you need to be patient, you need to invest, and you need to realize that uh, as soon as you say go, you better be ready to go. Um, and you better be ready to make some mistakes. You better be ready to fail because the only way you're going to succeed is by failing many, many times. That's how you make it in China. And the speed to fail is the speed to success. Scott is an absolute character. He was such a fun interview, and I would imagine he's such a great listen. The guy used to be a morning drive radio host. He used to do sketch comedy. He then switched over to joining Ogilvy in the 90s. Then he was sent to Beijing with the instructions, fix China. He's got great anecdotes about running to the one ATM in town, down in, in Russia town, where they, it was the only ATM that used to dispense uh, USD after he got paid, and the guy's would sprint down there because it would run out of usd so fast so if you wanted to hear it in its entirety go back to january 31st episode 28 and give it a full listen this next clip is from a great conversation with our friend scott laprise founder and senior analyst at research from beijing i simply asked scott is china innovative and he says yeah, China is not. It's adaptive. It's not innovative. And, and I think, again, that's a function of economics. Let's say even, for example, on patents. Certainly there's more patents being filed now by the Chinese, but the Chinese don't care as much. And, and the reason they don't is they don't make many novel patentable products. And that's because they're catching up. You look at any poor country, whether it's in Africa or in Asia, Thailand's a good example. They follow no patents on medicine. And that's because they believe copying all medicine is in the better interest of the people to have low-cost pharmaceuticals. So really, to me, the, the people, the countries that made the patent laws are the rich countries that had a lot to lose. And they want to enforce their point of view on every other country where the Chinese point of view is, how do we just catch up? How do we just get a cell phone? How do we just have a watch, maybe a car, maybe a home? That's about it. You know, their, their requirements are still pretty basic on what do they want to accumulate. And certainly it'll increase with economic power. So only through time, as China continues to innovate and they start to spend more money, really not so much on development. Because when we look at research, it's usually broken down into two segments, research and development. China is a development country taking a lot of products, medical, whatever it is, and developing them further to meet the Chinese characteristics. But they're not really researching novel. And that, again, that's just a function of time as they need to do. 5G may be something that you hear. There's a few things, but it's very, very few, few and far between. But you need economic power. There's a very strong correlation to how wealthy your country is and how innovative it is. 
Great episode with Scott Laprise released on March 6th. That's episode 34. We talk about communism, Guanxi, innovation versus adaption, and trying to financially analyze China. Go back and check out the full episode. This next clip is from a conversation that I had with Dr. Julie Klinger. She is an expert in rare earth metals. Hint, they're not actually rare. And they are actually in everything from magnets to missiles and all of our phones and tablets and computers and all the technology that we really love. And China dominates this industry. The problem is the mining of rare earth metals. It is very dangerous and it is very toxic, which is one of the reasons that China is still the dominant mining player in this industry. However, due to some good work by Chinese environmentalists, changes are afoot, and Julie speaks to a few of those changes that could benefit the rest of the world. Within China, the fact that there has been this massive effort to consolidate and clean up the domestic rare earth industry, to close down informal and unsafe mining operations is a victory for Chinese environmentalists. The other bigger picture side of that is, look, okay, so if this pollution isn't happening in China, where is it happening? And unfortunately, one of the things that we might be witnessing is, you know, as China's cleaning up domestically, it's exporting the more dangerous and polluting parts of the industry to other parts of the world. Within China's development, sort of China's official development doctrine, this is just something you have to do to develop. You know, you get dirty first and then you clean up later. Experts point to Britain and the Industrial Revolution. They point to the United States, you know, and the river that caught on fire in Ohio in the 1960s. And then all of a sudden you had the Clean Air Act and the EPA and all of that. And they say, look, like this is just what you have to do. But I think some second order effects that don't immediately come to mind actually concern the really considerable know-how that has developed in China in terms of actually how do you clean up a super toxic mining hellscape? How do you actually do that? It turns out people have been working on that in China. That means two things. That means one, rare earth mining doesn't necessarily have to be totally devastating. That globally, we have the scientific and engineering know-how to do it in environmentally responsible manner. And two, you know, for those mining sites, rare earth or otherwise, that are just this chronic, awful environmental and public health problem, there's actually expertise there. Like there's an opportunity for partnerships, you know, with Chinese scientists and engineers to maybe clean up our own backyards too, where we do have these problems. All that and more is in episode 42 with Dr. Julie Klinger that was released on April 13th, 2020, an industry and products and a mining sector that most of us likely didn't know much about until now. Up next, as we continue our greatest hits of 2020, we go to the episode with Gen Kanai. Gen is a Japanese-American who has worked with Toyota USA, Sony USA, Sony Japan, Digital Garage. He helped bring Mozilla to Asia, and most recently, he's been with Animoca Brands. This was a pretty awesome discussion and a great history lesson on things like why eBay failed and Yahoo won as an auction platform in Japan, how Google won as a search engine in Japan, despite its 
itself simply because Yahoo Japan didn't choose Bing, which Yahoo USA had. We even talk about why Twitter's been such a large success in Japan because of the anonymity that it provides. This clip is from part of that conversation where we talk about a very anecdotal experience where the CEO of Snapchat had made a visit to China and what happened because of that visit. Evan Spiegel, the CEO of Snapchat, came to China and just saw how vibrant and how different the sort of photo sharing, social photo photo space is in East Asia and and how different China is from the rest of the world. Essentially, he goes back to Los Angeles and mandates all these changes to the plat to his own platform because he saw you know, all these things working really well in, in China. He tried to replicate things that he saw with WeChat, with Weibo. He neglected to realize that the user base is very different. Uh, and the existing user base at the time at Snapchat was just not ready for radical changes to a platform that they were using. A lot of the users revolted and most, if not all of the changes that Spiegel had mandated were, uh, reverted back to, to, you know, a previous, um, design. I think Spiegel assumed that what worked in China would work in an, for a non-China Snapchat audience, audience. And that's just not true. The The markets are different. China is significantly different from the rest of the world for uh, multiple reasons. I think it's dangerous when a CEO comes to China or comes to East Asia, sees some shiny object, sees some new trend, you know, tries to implement that trend without uh, more context, without better understanding why that feature or that product or whatever uh, does well in an East Asian market. I mean, there are certainly are cases where those products will do well in the West, but it's not always the case. And I would say that if you look at other markets, again, it's each market is, let's say other East Asian markets or uh, other Southeast Asian markets or South Asian markets. Again, the markets are very different from each other. And you can maybe take some general ideas from markets in Asia, but uh, taking direct examples and trying to bring a product, fr- you know, from, let's say, India or whatever directly to the U.S. and expecting it to be successful. Often, you you know, you won't see that same success. For the full discussion on tech in Japan, how Google won, eBay lost, why Twitter couldn't lose, and lessons learned growing Mozilla in Asia, go back and check out our conversation with Gen Kanai on July 17th, episode 54. Up next, we dive into the conversation I had with Barbara Finnamore, who is the author of Will China Save the Planet? She's also the founder and senior strategic director, Asia, at the Natural Resources Defense Council. That episode really did focus on pollution. So one of the queries I put to Barbara was this. Should China get a pass on the amount of pollution that it produces today, given that a lot of other countries around the world have had their day, had their time, used a lot of pollution generating activities to power their economies. Why shouldn't China get the chance to do the same in order to catch up? And here's what she had to say. I don't think we need to give China a pass because the situation is so different now than when many Western countries began to develop. There weren't other alternatives to coal and to oil and gas for a country that wished to power its economy. And now in large part, 
because of what China has done. It's the largest producer, consumer, and investor in renewable energy. The cost of these clean energy sources has plummeted in the last decade. So China no longer needs to rely on coal to continue its economic growth. And in fact, it's more expensive for them to at this point and for two thirds of the world's population, it's more expensive now to build new coal plants than to build new solar or wind plants. And energy efficiency is what I call the cheapest, cleanest, and fastest source of energy. It's the megawatt, the energy you don't use. To the extent that China invests in energy efficiency, it puts it in an even better economic position because it saves money. It makes its industries more competitive. It produces more jobs. So there's really the argument that China should be allowed to pollute first and clean up later just doesn't make any sense for its own economy right now. That was episode 51 that we released on June 17th of this year with Barbara Finnamore discussing energy, pollution, and why China's electric vehicle industry might just save our planet. Up next, we jump to one of our most recent episodes with Matthew Brennan, co-founder and managing director of China Channel and author of Attention Factory, the story of TikTok and China's ByteDance. As many of you know, TikTok has kind of taken over the world this year. So has the company ByteDance, in fact, and it's been in the news. It's been used as a political posturing point. So this clip was something that I found really, really interesting because Matthew talks to us about the algorithms and how the engineers behind TikTok have been able to make it just so darn sticky that now we see it everywhere. The algorithms, it learns what you want without you having to do anything. So people are, have, everyone sort of commented about this. There's no social network behind it, right? So you don't need to add friends. You don't even need to follow accounts. You can just surface content. You don't even need to register an account, right? You can just download the app and start using it straight away. They create a shadow profile for you and they can start you know, tagging your shadow profile without even you telling them who you are um, or, or giving them any kind of uh, identifier there. It's a very very, very slick or well-oiled machine in terms of like the onboarding experience is super slick. Like I say, there's, there's no friction there. You can just start using it and it quickly starts learning and surfacing content that you, you want to watch. And part of that is because due to the user experience, the way it works, every piece of content, you must give them some indication of whether you like it or not. Even by doing nothing, that is a strong indicator that you actually like the content. Because if you didn't like the content, all you need to do is swipe up. Even the sort of indication of how much power you put into swiping up, right? Whether you swipe up slowly or if it's a quick swipe or whether it's a long swipe, all of that is actually very useful for them. They can analyze pretty much everything you do. Uh, if you're searching the comments, likes, uh, every, every, every action you make is enriching your user profile. Every action you make is telling them more about you. And due to the, the way that short video works, you know, these are 15 second videos, 30 second videos. So within a 60 second period, you might be giving them four or five different pieces of information for them to know more about you. 
Again, that was one of our most recent episodes. That was Matthew Brennan, Part 1, Episode 72, released on December 8th. He is the author of Attention Factory, the story of TikTok and China's ByteDance, loaded with great information. Definitely one of our top episodes of the year. Next up, we dive into the episode with Anne Kokus, Associate Professor of Media Studies at the University of Virginia and the author of the award-winning book, Hollywood Made in China. This was a really interesting conversation because it was right at the time when Mulan was being released to a rather tepid reception within China. One of the things that we talked about that I found really, really interesting was, yes, okay, China is having a huge impact on how Hollywood is making movies. And they're impacting how they're being cast because we know there's more Chinese being featured in the film. We know that it's having an impact on where movies are shot. But we started talking about Anne's optimism on whether this would actually start to change the types of movies that were made in China and the stories that were told. When I wrote the first draft of Hollywood Made in China, which was my dissertation at UCLA, the way that I finished it was this is an amazing opportunity for the provincialism and the kind of lack of global perspective of Hollywood to be broken down. And I do think that's true. The challenge is what we're seeing is an emerging focus on one kind of Han Chinese narrative that's supported by the Chinese government. So we're, we're seeing a lot of Chinese voices clouded out from the perspective of the Chinese government. And then from the perspective of Hollywood, we're also seeing this kind of commercial narrowing. So in some ways, it's this tunnel that's narrowing as the Venn diagram between what's acceptable from a commercial standpoint in Hollywood and what's acceptable from a political standpoint in China starts to narrow the whole context. So I'm not as optimistic as I once was, though I do think that it's awesome that there are more stories that are being told from other countries, actors that are being hired from different racial and ethnic groups. And that is a trend that I really hope takes hold, but I'm not certain that it will ultimately expand the range of stories that are going to be told in Hollywood. If you want to know more about the whole conversation around Hollywood in China, the impact that China is having on Hollywood, I think it's been in the news a lot. We also had a great chat about the streaming platforms like Netflix and Hulu's and Disney Plus and Amazon Prime and all the other things. So it's a really cool episode. Go give it a full listen. September 16th, episode 61 and Cocos, how China is changing the way Hollywood makes movies. The next episode we're going to dive into for our greatest hits of 2020 is the episode with James McGregor. James has over 25 years of experience in China. He is an American author. He's a journalist. He's a businessman. He's a professional speaker and a commentator who specializes in China's business, politics, and society. And he regularly appears in the media to discuss China-related topics. The clip I wanted to pull out for this episode was where I talked to James about the Belt and Road initiative. I talked to a lot of guests this year about the Belt and Road initiative, and one of the running themes was generally the mistrust around why China was doing this. And I asked James for his opinion on that. Well, you know, the Belt and Road, when it was announced, what was it, back in 2015, was um, there was nothing behind it. Mm-hmm. It was just it was just an announcement in two different tranches, one in Indonesia, one in Kazakhstan, that basically, you know, the, the Maritime Silk Road and the, the what, I can't even keep the road straight anymore. But, you know, and, and there was nothing behind it. So then the SOEs had to jump into action and they did what comes natural 
um, they found good corrupt dictators to work with and, and um, there was no central controls. And so a lot of money went out in stupid ways. And I, so I don't believe the debt trap diplomacy argument. I think it was incompetence um, that, you know, China just went rushing out with money and there was no controls and people were trying to do a KPI because you had to do Belt and Road stuff. And then the bureaucracy, bureaucracy started adding to it. When you when when the government comes out with something like this, then the bureaucracy adds their own adds their own twist. The maritime Silk Road, uh, the the cyber Silk Road, the Arctic Silk Road, um, and they just started expanding like hell without a lot behind it. But generally, you can look at it a couple of ways. One is that there are some good things going on in that infrastructure that African countries and others needed. The other way you can look at it, there's not a magnanimous bone in the um, in the in the body politic of, of China, and it's all it's all about what's good for us. It's very transactional. Yeah. Um, you know, we need your copper. Okay, we're going to give you two stadiums and the legislature, and we're going to build a railroad to get that copper out of there. And 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 they're pretty bold faced about it. And they're also they, this whole wolf warrior diplomacy. They've gotten very very um, pushy and belligerent in the way they in the way they treat the world. At the same time. They're filling a void. You know, the Belt and Road, these guys are going out in these countries and they're putting infrastructure in there and, and they're making connections and they're spending money. Um, and what the hell is the U.S. doing? You know, what, what are what are the international aid organizations doing? Again, you talk about lit- litigation. We got we built up a system so that in order to give a loan to a country and build a project, you had to go through so many environmental and legal and human rights and all these things that nothing got done. I'm not saying those aren't important things, but they certainly weren't streamlined to make things happen. So China came in and filled that void. I think actually, if you look at if you look at the breadth of uh, Belt and Road and you look at all of the ports um, and and pipelines and railroads and whatever, uh, it's breathtaking how much they're spreading around the world. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot to what it's turning into. It's like everything China does. It's it, it's big. It's overdone. It's messy. It wastes a lot of money. But when the smoke clears, there's something there. And sometimes there's a lot there. That was James McGregor. Episode 57 released on August 17th about the future of TikTok and WeChat, what we always get wrong about China at Made in China 2025. For those who want to go and check out the full episode. Up next is our conversation with Kevin Shu, a conversation that was so good for so long that we ended up making it into two episodes. Kevin has a very unique background. He has a Bachelor of Arts in International Relations from Brown University, then went on to study law and computer science at Stanford. He spent a couple of years at the White House in the Obama administration, then became an entrepreneur in e-commerce and then design strategy, made a bunch of money there, then became very interested in open source projects, something that he invests his money into to this day, and is the founder and author of Interconnected.blog, a publication that analyzes businesses and trends from the lens of builders, operators, investors, regulators, and how they are all interconnected globally. Oh, and did I mention he's also a podcaster? He's the co-host of the Model Majority Podcast. He's a brilliant guy. It was a brilliant conversation. And in this clip, we are talking about decoupling. We're talking about Apple. We're talking about the effects of COVID. We're talking about the value that many countries around the world because of COVID found in being self-reliant, whether it was in manufacturing or other. I think one thing on a very macro level that COVID exposed for countries is that there's a lot of value to becoming more self-reliant overall, 
right? So we see that in the U.S.'s lack of a response to PPE. And obviously, the tight link between uh, manufacturer capacities in China with, you know, Apple, with all these other American companies, that is now becoming uh, less of a assumption that this is just the right way to do business. But you have to think a bit more about where else should you go to maintain your own uh self-reliancy in a sense. And China's thinking about in the same way, right? The bunch of stuff that China's relying on the US and other places to do. And they're thinking about from a technology angle when it comes to semiconductors and so on and so forth, how do we become self-reliant uh, because of sanctions? And that's obviously not directly related to COVID. And with regard to Apple uh, in China, they are already diversifying some of their very low end manufacturing pieces to places like India to places like Vietnam. Uh, I think Samsung and Xiaomi actually both have pretty sizable manufacturing base in India uh, to sell phones to their Indian customer. I think there's actually a, an Indian regulation that you you have to manufacture like a certain amount of this end product inside India to be able to be allowed to sell to Indian uh, consumers, right? Which you sure, see a I lot like of that, that kind of policy uh, for yeah. developing countries. And I think the nuance there is that Chinese manufacturing is really good. Because yeah. they've been doing this uh, at various levels of the value chain for a very long time. Like if you are a, a, a hardware prototyper, if like your next idea has a hardware component to it, you're going to Shenzhen. Right. There's like no question. Sure. There's still so much competition on the ground that's very cutthroat. Like their manufacturers were very good, will make your shit for a hundred pieces and they wouldn't take bulk orders. They're like, yeah, we'll do it. Like it's fine. Like we're losing money. So what? Right. Like they're very, very mm-hmm. aggressive still. So you're going to be competing against that uh, by other countries. I, I know for a fact that India manufacturers do not have that way of doing business. <laughs> Yeah. Right. So so to think about it is like, will Apple's decoupling be a huge to do? I think on the headline it will be. But Apple is like arguably the most uh, sophisticated manufacturer in the whole uh, on the whole planet. So they will figure out what the best thing they need to do is for their bottom line. And right now they're not moving in droves outside of China to other places because they're no good actual manufacturing alternatives, right? There's some in the U.S. They're obviously building their Mac in the U.S. and all these sorts of things. Um, But uh, China has definitely a lead in that sense. So at the end of the day, a lot of this kind of knee-jerk reaction to COVID, to decoupling, to to interconnection versus self-reliance, people are still sorting it out because it's such a big jolt, this COVID thing. And uh, hopefully in the next year or two, we'll become we'll become more reasonable about it. Like there's certain parts that we do need to build ourselves, right? Medicine, you know, medical devices to be emergency reserve, right? For your own citizen. That's just like your job as a, as a freaking leader of the country. Um, But there are other parts in the business world where over-reliant on yourself just doesn't make a lot of sense. That was Kevin Shu, definitely one of my favorite guests of the year. Part one was episode 66 that we released on October 27th, and part two, episode 67, released on November 3rd. Last but not least is our conversation with Ann Stevenson-Young, yet another episode that we were so fond of, we turned it into two. 
Anne is American born and raised, but has lived in the People's Republic of China for more than 25 years. In 2008, she co-founded her most recent company, which was renamed to J Capital in 2011. It's an independent research firm that focuses mainly on Chinese companies and the macro environment. In her episodes, we cover unemployment rates in China, China's housing bubble. We ask her to explain the RMB exchange rate, China's position as an economic powerhouse, the U.S. election, and this clip about whether Alibaba is a good investment target. I think that Alibaba is one of the biggest frauds ever perpetrated on the investing public. And I think Tencent is uh, pretty damn fraudulent too. Do I think that they'll default on debt? I haven't, I haven't looked at their financial statements in quite a long time. So I really can't say uh, which debt they have and which is payable in dollars and at what time and you know when they'll default on it. So that, that's a level of precision that I really don't have over these companies because I threw up my hands on them a long time ago. Um, what I think is that the overstatement of, of the asset value of Tencent is, is phenomenal. They're overstating their revenue. They're overstating their profit. What their actual profit is, I don't know. I think they probably are profitable um, and that they you know, pay all their own costs. So no, they're not building up a big chunk of date, debt, but I think that they're overstating their, their profit quite a bit. Alibaba is just a ridiculously huge black box into which, uh, you know, which, which the, the Alibaba PR team just uh, throws all of these assets and says, you know, look, we have something worth $10 billion and we're not telling you what it is. Now we have something worth $30 billion and we're not telling you what it is. It's just a ridiculous investment target. But, you know, it'll die when it dies. You know, my, my theory with Alibaba has always been that once the market starts to deflate and Alibaba shares start to become less valuable, then one of the, uh, the Chinese telcos will just absorb it. That's a wrap. I hope you enjoyed our greatest hits of 2020. And now it is time to kick this year to the curb and look forward to a very different, very healthy and happy 2021. Big thanks to all of our audience, all of our subscribers, all of our listeners, and of course, to all of our guests. From all of us here at The Negotiation and WPIC Marketing and Technologies, we wish you a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. Growing a company is hard. Doing it in a foreign market? Exponentially so. The best piece of advice I can give you is not to do it alone. When you start looking across the pond for further expansion possibilities, and I sincerely hope that you do, make sure you choose the right partners to do it with. My good friends at WPIC Marketing and Technologies have almost 20 years of experience helping brands just like yours enter China. I hope you enjoyed this episode of The Negotiation. And if you're interested in being a guest or want to connect with me or any of our team, please reach out to us at podcast at WPIC.co. And be sure to rate, comment, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Zai Jing.